Well, hear the word from your king that he has given to you in his favor. Joshua chapter 6, we're reading verses 6 through 14. Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew with the trumpets, and the armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. Amen. Father, as we approach your word, we do so with reverence, with gratefulness that you have resourced us with your scriptures and challenged us with your scriptures. And I pray that you would enable me uh, to be a faithful uh, steward as I bring this word to you and that, uh, to these, your people and that you would quicken uh, these scriptures to our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Gary mentioned last week, uh, over this next year, we're going to be uh, looking at the theme of servanthood, um, various facets of that, uh, both our service inside the church, outside the church, our vertical uh, service to God, our horizontal service to others. And it just so happens that our next section in Joshua deals with the obedience of faith. Faith must drive our obedience if it is to be pleasing to God. And the reason we know that, as Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Obedience or no obedience, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Of course, obedience itself defines and expresses our faith. And so the two really have to go hand in hand. They cannot separate the two. But God loves to bless those who have the obedience of faith. And I think verses 6 through 14 are a beautiful illustration of what that looks like. And we're going to start with Joshua. Uh, Joshua's faith and obedience was tested by not allowing him to explain the very odd behavior he was going to have the Israelites go through uh, over the next uh, seven days. He took them through it st one step at a time. But as each day went by and Joshua kept repeating the same orders with no apparent results, uh, it had the potential of raising eyebrows among the various uh, Israelites. Everyone can see in verse 1 that the city is totally secure. There is no scaling the walls. There's no battering down of the doors. I mean, God himself had told Joshua in verse 1 that the city was securely shut up. There was no getting in. And so uh, it, uh, 
uh, it's going to take some faith on Joshua's part as well as on the people's part to do what God said. Now here's God's strategy that we looked at last week, verses 3 through 5 of chapter 6. He says, You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight uh, before him. Now we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, and Joshua believed that this was just God and Joshua. It's just between the two of them. He believed what God told him. But when our belief is challenged by circumstances and pressure and ridicule and peer pressure, it's very easy for leaders uh, to begin to not act consistently with their belief. Leaders are often very sensitive to what their people think about them. And uh, it would have been very easy for Joshua to, you know, want to explain himself to the people and to want to maybe adjust his plans a little bit in order to save face and avoid criticism of his leadership. Because just think of how crazy these plans must have appeared, or could have appeared at least, if they did not have faith. First of all, think of the endless marching around the city with no results. They aren't even told how long they're going to be doing this. Joshua knows, but the people apparently don't. Think of those seven days from the leader's perspective. Those seven days would give plenty of time for discontent to arise within the ranks of Israel. A leader could be tempted to worry that after all of this fruitful marching and with no explanation, some of the people might start grumbling about crazy old Joshua. What in the world is uh, he up to? Uh, What is the silly expression you sometimes hear in the coffee shops? It's not totally accurate. Uh, But what's the definition of insanity, they say? It's doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, right? (laughs) And the people might have started saying something like that if they didn't have faith. When people question a leader's decision, time is not the leader's friend. But God makes Joshua wait seven days before he can explain the next step to the people. If the people are called to faith, then the leader better live by faith himself. But it's very, very easy for leaders to easily become embarrassed by what people will think of them. After all, when in human history have walls fallen down, you know, by trumpets blasting at them, people shouting at those walls, you know? Uh, Why should people charge at invincible walls? There was plenty to make the people doubt, and if the people doubted, you can see how it could come back to bite Joshua. People will think I'm nuts if I don't somehow explain myself. But Joshua doesn't seem to be the least bit embarrassed. He doesn't feel the need to explain himself. In fact, the limited information that he gives to them in verses 6 through 7 tests the people's faith too. It says, Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who was armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. That's all he tells them. Now the first day, that might have seemed exciting. We'll see what Joshua has up his sleeve. You know, this is cool. We're finally getting some action. 
Uh, but he does the same thing for six days. Now, anyway, I won't go any further on that. I think you get the point. Joshua passes the leader's test. Uh, he followed through on exactly what God told him to do, even if it didn't seem realistic to do so. And what I want to do is I want to apply uh, this, first of all, to our Christian political leaders, because that's what Joshua was. Uh, the Bible's instructions to political leaders today seem just as unrealistic as God's instructions to Joshua. Okay? For example, take God's instructions concerning abortion. Exodus 21 says that we need to treat babies in the womb as persons with all of the rights that other persons have. And it says that any abortion that takes place, any willful abortion, should be treated as murder. Right? Uh, well, the trouble is, it's not politically correct to call abortion murder, and so many Christian politicians uh, do not do so. Instead, they try to limit abortions by regulating abortion with reasons that hopefully will seem okay to the general populace. For example, last January, a senator in Nebraska introduced the heartbeat bill uh, that abortion would be illegal after week seven. Now, she is poised to bring this legislation again here, She's very sincere, by the way. She wants to limit the number of abortions. I can appreciate that, but she leaves God's definition of abortion out of the discussion and instead frames it in terms of medical care. Let me read her explanation. She told Channel 8 News, LB 1086, what this does is it establishes a standard of care for the use of chemical abortions. Chemical abortions make up about 70% of the abortions in the state of Nebraska, and currently there is no prescribed standard of care. She went on to say, this bill limits the use of chemical agents to use during the first seven weeks of pregnancy, and get this explanation, as risks of complications increase substantially each week thereafter. LB 1086 would also prohibit distributing those drugs through the mail. Now, two things stand out to me on this explanation. The first is that it seems like it's okay to have an abortion up through week uh, seven. Now, she doesn't believe that, but because she thinks it will not pass in any other way, this is the way that she frames the argument. The second thing that stands out to me is that this bill makes for good standards of care since we don't want complications to happen when abortions happen. And uh, so, in other words, make abortion safe, regulate it. Now, I know she doesn't believe that, but it's a vehicle to try to reduce the number of abortions. That's a great goal, isn't it? And I would say, no, both the goal and the method are faulty. They are wrong. What does Romans 13 say the goal of a civic officer should be, even in ancient Rome? It should be to be a minister of God for justice and for vengeance. And sincerity has nothing to do with it. These are, these are great people. But if the blood guilt of our land is ever to be cleansed and God's favor returned, and it is God's favor that we should be seeking, then state officials need to do four things with regard to abortion. First of all, they need to line their definitions up with God's definition in Exodus chapter 21. God says willful abortion after fertilization of the egg, after conception, is murder. And so the state needs to criminalize all abortion to define it as murder. Second, the civic officer needs to be willing to punish murder as murder and not be apologetic about it. Third, stop calling the women victims. 
if they have agreed to murder their babies. And then fourth, for church leaders and civic leaders, both of whom are guilty, to publicly repent of the sins of abortion in our land. Then God guarantees he will cleanse the land. He is willing to cleanse sin, but not if we don't confess our sins. He is willing to cleanse the land of blood guilt and restore uh, his favor. Now, you might think that this is an absolutely impossible task, but I will tell you this has been done many times in the past. George Grant's written a book on this. It's a wonderful book. He's written a book showing from the apostolic age the times when abortion has been made illegal despite the fact that Christians were a tiny minority. Did you know that in New York in the 1800s, abortion became legal and it was there was abortion clinics all over the state of New York, and yet once the church woke up to this and civic leaders began to be convicted of this, they once again criminalized abortion uh, in New York. You see, the Bible indicates that a politician should not vote in favor of sin, abortion's legal up until week XYZ, in order to limit more sin that after that week it is not legal. Politicians tell me, Phil, Getting a bill that criminalizes 100% of abortion is unrealistic. It is not achievable. The bill will not even get out of committee. And my response is, it doesn't matter. What does God want you to do? After all, Romans 13 says, you are a minister of God, and you must represent God. God calls for faithfulness, not for successful passage of a bill. The results are in God's hand. A second trying to abolish abortion is just as unrealistic as taking on the city of Jericho. Or to use a more modern example, it is just as unrealistic as William Wilberforce trying to make slavery illegal in England. Everybody told him, this is impossible. Give it up. You cannot do this. And yet God made it a success. Now, the success is in God's hands, right? That's his responsibility. Our responsibility is the obedience of faith, and both obedience and faith are defined by the Scripture. And here's the thing. If Christians would walk by faith, our nation would instantly be a different country. Why do I say that? Well, the Pew Foundation did a survey of the members of the 117th Congress, and 88% of them identified as Christian. They have the vote if they would follow the Bible in faith, okay? And yet the vast majority of those 88% think it is unrealistic to do so, and so they do not try, okay? They don't even think it's realistic to pass a biblically reasonable budget. I mean, look at the Christians that voted in favor of the absolutely insane 1.7 trillion, I think it's grown actually since then, but 1.7 trillion omnibus this past December. Okay, that's what's really nuts. Christians have the vote, but they don't have the faith, the worldview, the guts, or the willingness to serve God in politics. We desperately need political leaders who can pass the faithfulness test that Joshua passed and stop making excuses. But we can't rightly criticize civic leaders for their lack of faith and their compromises if we act in exactly the same way. So let's examine the priests, the soldiers, and the average person. Verse 8 describes church leaders who were willing to put their necks on the line, even if it looks stupid to the Jerichoites. Verse 8 says, So it was, 
When Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. Won't the church look pretty stupid if those walls don't come down after seven days? Maybe, but if God tells us to march around the walls, they're going to do it. If God commands something, they're willing to obey. And get this, they need to be willing to obey boldly, clearly, loudly and publicly, and they need to unapologetically identify with Jehovah by carrying his throne in plain sight of everyone without embarrassment. That's what the ark was, was his throne, right? So that's loudly and publicly declaring the lordship of Christ over all of life without any embarrassment, and they did so. It was a bold statement of faith to anyone that was looking on that God's ways are right even if everyone thinks they are stupid for believing that. You see, truth does not change based on public opinion. It does not. We need to be convinced of that. Those were the kind of church leaders that Israel had back then. Now, what has the modern church done? Have they boldly blown the trumpets of war? No. For the most part, the church wants to look nice in the eyes of the world, and as a result, the church has become largely irrelevant. Consider the following indisputable facts. Surveys show that the vast majority of pastors and other church leaders in our nation today still send their children to government schools despite the fact that these schools have become even more insane in the things in which they are, they are teaching. Rather than discipling the nation, what these pastors have done is they have invited the nation to disciple their children. It's the very reverse of the Great Commission. Okay, and they all have their excuses. For example, they say that they're sending their children to be missionaries in the school. Sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? Okay, forget about the fact that these children are not yet trained to be missionaries. Forget about the fact that these children are students. They're not teachers. They're not in a position to be very good missionaries. And forget about the fact that they are defenseless in the face of wolves. Or secondly, these pastors claim that they can't afford to give their children Christian education. Yeah, right, while they're watching Netflix on 72-inch TVs and driving the latest model of vehicles and uh, spending money on other things that are non-essentials. So I repeat my accusation that the majority of church leaders today have invited the pagans to disciple their children. It's insane. They are not living like these priests. And this is just one of many such compromises. I'll give you two more. Hardly any pulpits condemn child sacrifice, uh, pray for its total abolition, or seek to interpose by picketing at the abortion clinics, or speaking to political representatives and really calling them to account. Modern preaching does not even remotely resemble the preaching of Jesus or the ancient prophets. So where are the priests willing to blow the trumpets of war? They are AWOL. Third, rather than promoting adoption, or in other ways living out the Scripture's description of pure and undefiled religion, and you know what James describes that as, as caring for widows and orphans in their distress, you look at the surveys of what the church believes, they're A-OK -okay with the government welfare programs and government-run foster care. It used to be the church that led in these areas, and I could go on with a long list of reasons why I believe that the modern priests of our nation are not willing to loudly blow the trumpets of war or to carry God's presence into the public sphere. They lack the obedience of faith. Now let's look next at the soldiers. 
Verse 9 shows that the soldiers were not embarrassed to be surrounded by these religious nuts, these religiously zealous priests blowing these horns. These were the activists. These soldiers are the ones who are going to be taking on the city. Verse 9, the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now, the momentary thought could have come into their heads that it does seem a little odd to be marching around an impenetrable city, but they rejected any such thought because they were living by faith and they were prepared to fight at a moment's notice. They didn't know how, they didn't know when it would happen, but they were prepared to fight at a moment's notice, and it's a good thing because being prepared meant that they could take advantage of the Jericho Whites' utter surprise when those walls came down and instantly penetrate the city. If they're surrounding the city, later it says they go straight forward before them and they're able to conquer. Now, what would have happened if they were lounging back in the camp? Most of those Jericho Whites would have escaped, right? Okay, it would be no good. When the walls came down, they were all in their places with swords at the ready. And the point is, faith makes plans for God to answer our prayers. Faith makes plans for God to answer our prayers. This is why uh, Robert Fugate and I collaborated together to write up some explicitly biblical party platform platforms for each political issue that really is out there. Every phrase of each of the 24 party platforms that we wrote is heavily footnoted with scriptures, 171 footnotes altogether, uh, to make sure some future party will be explicitly biblical. Now, here's the question that might come up in people's minds. Why on earth would Dr. Fugate and I waste our time doing something so silly? It's unrealistic. It's never going to be used. Why would we do that? It's because we are making plans for God to answer our prayers. And what are our prayers? That God would tear down every stronghold, every high thing that has exalted itself against the knowledge of God in our culture and replace it with Christian civilization. If you're praying for a baby, go out and buy a baby crib. You know, start making preparations for that baby. Make plans for that baby. If you are, are praying for a job, start looking for a job. Start making adjustments to your schedule for a job, right? What would Christians do if God made America converted overnight? It would be utterly embarrassing because Christians aren't prepared to replace humanism with anything. In fact, Christians are the chief opponents of applying the Scripture in culture. Let me repeat that accusation. Christians are the chief opponents of applying Scripture to culture. Let me just give you one example, and many more could be given. Last May, Louisiana was considering a bill that would have allowed murder charges to be brought against anyone involved in abortion, including the mother uh, who was willingly uh, coming to murder her baby right? It was, a, it was a good bill, and it looked like they had the votes to pass it. So what are the activist Christian soldiers who claim to be taking on the strongholds of abortion? What did they do in response? Well, we know exactly what they did. The leaders of 76 pro-life organization whose whole stated goal is supposedly to oppose abortion wrote a letter condemning the legislation, saying that they were unequivocally opposed to criminalizing a woman's getting an abortion, and asking legislators instead to, quote, act with love and compassion towards such women, to always treat such women as a victim of a callous industry. 
Let me read one quote, uh, one paragraph in full. It says, as national and state pro-life organizations representing tens of millions of pro-life men, women, and children across the country, let us be clear. We state unequivocally that any measure seeking to criminalize or punish women is not pro-life, and we stand firmly opposed to such efforts. Did you get that? They said any measure, any measure, Seeking to criminalize or punish women is not pro-life, and we stand firmly opposed to such efforts. And then the letter mandated that legislators always treat such women as a victim of a callous industry. Really? Even women like Jessica Del Balzo, who said this, and I quote, she said, I love abortion. I don't accept it. I don't view it as a necessary evil. I embrace it. I donate to abortion funds. Rather than trying to cozy up to the forced birth camp, women who value their freedom should be proud to say they like abortion. In fact, they should venerate it wholeheartedly. Abortion is our last refuge, the one final definitive instrument that secures our bodily autonomy. What's not to love? Here's my point in bringing this up. We should not donate one more dime to such pro-life, so-called pro-life organizations. Instead, support Jared Ridge's organization, End Abortion Now, or organizations like that. The organizations that wrote that letter aren't biblically pro-life. They are living fat off of the naivete of Christians who donate money to them, and it sure seems to me they don't want the abortion industry to end because then their cozy stream of income will end. Maybe I'm being too cynical, but at least I think we can say that these 76 pro-life organizations, that letter that they sent basically calls God's law immoral and tells people to not trust God's word on this subject. It would be too embarrassing. It was signed by Roman Catholic pro-life groups, Lutherans, and even the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. They have failed this test, haven't they? Now, what about soldiers for other so-called Christian advocacy groups? It is obvious many of them think like the world. Christians have not studied biblical economics, biblical civics, biblical mercy ministries, biblical administration, marketing, what the Bible says to 60 other uh, topics. We desperately need the church to be ready with biblical answers that can be put in place the moment the walls of our modern Jericho fall, and they will fall in God's providence. God has guaranteed they will eventually fall. He's promised that they will fall, but I doubt God will make the walls of Jericho fall until the church demonstrates the obedience of faith. Why would he bother? Please pray for Biblical Blueprints team as we seek to show the sufficiency of Scripture for all of life. Before the nation can be changed, the activist soldiers in the church need to be changed. And when you've got activist Christians like Jim Wallace of Sojourners who believe that God calls us to be Christian communists, oh boy, you know the soldiers of the kingdom are not ready. They're not ready for the walls to come down, not even remotely. The church is a mess. Yes, we have activists, but do they know the biblical blueprints? Are they really following what God's law says? No, many of them explicitly reject God's Old Testament laws being in any way relevant to New Testament culture. They turn instead to natural law. It's crazy. It's the opposite of the obedience of faith. Now, not to be discouraging, <laughs> which is what this has been, it's changing. Praise God, it is changing. All across America, there are leaders who are popping up 
who are taking God at his word, who are utterly unembarrassed by God's word, who have confidence, who have the obedience of faith. They are multiplying, praise God. And so let's ditch the failed weapons of the world, fighting spiritual battles the world's way. And here is what 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6 says we should do instead. It says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. And what about the rest of the people? God gives them a challenge of faith as well, and they too stand as a model of faith, the obedience of faith to us. Verse 10. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. Wow. For six days we've got to endure the jeering and the heckling of the Canaanites sitting on top of the wall of Jericho. This is going to take some self-control, Joshua. Uh, I mean, they're going to be uh, mocking us, telling us, there's no way you can take this. Your God is foolish. Surely we should respond in some way, shouldn't we? Joshua says, nope, not a sound. Not a word is to come out of your mouth. If God calls for absolute silence, they're willing to obey. It shows the obedience of faith. And when God called the people to shout at the wall, to start running at the wall, they were willing to do so. They didn't hold mental reservations. What if the walls don't fall down? No, they gave the kind of implicit obedience that demonstrated genuine faith. And I would urge each of us to obey what we already know are the clear commands of Scripture and not allow embarrassment, pragmatics, realism, quote-unquote realism, <laughs> or anything else to stop our obedience of faith. And I'm just going to give a couple of areas where common people of the kingdom really need to rethink their obedience of faith. And I know these are controversial ideas. It's going to maybe take some time for you to wrap your brains around them, but be Bereans and see if what I'm saying is right. You can disagree with me, but I hope you have biblical reasons for disagreeing, right? At least keep an open mind. First, think about who you vote for and ask yourself why you vote that way. Do your reasons come from the Bible or do they come from pragmatism? Let's consider the minimal qualifications that the Bible lays out for civic officers that we are supposed to choose. Uh, Robert Fugate has written up a, a list that I'm sure he would be willing to uh, share with you, well, very well laid out. I've developed a briefer list of 11, I've divided it up in three ways, 11 absolutely essential qualifications without which God will absolutely reject a candidate from civic office an additional 20 qualifications that candidates should aspire to, that Christians should prefer, but which, you know, if there's one or two of those missing, don't necessarily disqualify. And in addition, there are some specialized qualifications for specialized officers like judges. The point is, God does not leave us in the dark as to what He wants, and what I'm interested in is, what does God want me to do when I get out there in the culture? That's what I'm interested in knowing, okay? We can have confidence that the Bible is sufficient to tell us how to please God in all of life. But it's interesting that God deliberately gives some qualifications that test our faith 
and that sure test the obedience of faith. And I'm going to give you just five of the first 11 qualifications that the Bible says are an absolute must so that you can see that the Bible does not guide the voting of Christians at all. At all. Not at all. And yes, they have their excuses, but in my opinion, they amount to lack of faith. They don't have the faith that these people had. Okay, qualification eight in this list that I have is that the candidate must be a male and not a female. And yes, the Bible puts the word must in front of that qualification. The word must. Women cannot rule. Okay? I can't ignore that word must simply because there aren't any good male candidates. Deborah was not a political leader. She was a prophetess. Very essential prophetess, but she was not a political leader. Hebrews tells us Barak ruled while she was alive, not her. Qualification five is that candidates must be Christians. Qualification six, the candidate must be familiar with Scripture. Qualification nine, must not compromise on some principles of righteousness and justice in order to advance some other righteous clause, a cause. That's exactly what the pro-life movement is doing. Qualification 10, he must rule in the fear of the Lord. People say, well, that rules out everybody, doesn't it? No, believe it or not, <laughs> I've actually been able to vote for people who have met all 11 essentials and many of the 20 uh, uh, preferred uh, qualifications that aren't absolutely uh, essentials. Uh, but anyway, uh, some people think such lists are utterly unrealistic in our day and age. As one person told me, hey, don't you believe in total depravity? Total depravity means we can't be unrealistic, so we will never be able to vote for a perfect candidate. And I asked him, did total depravity exist at the time of Moses? <laughs> well, obviously it did, right? And yet Moses still held out a perfect standard. Yes, there's going to be corruption in politics. Yes, there will be people who will promise bad things. But we need to be pressing our country toward God's standard. I got into an argument with someone recently who was criticizing John Thune for voting in favor of the 1.7 trillion dollar omnibus back in uh, December. And I, I agreed with this gentleman. John Thune was wrong in doing that. Uh, but I said, you too are compromised in that you voted for an utterly unqualified candidate. The lesser of two evils is what his argument was. This man was utterly unqualified for office. In fact, he already had made promises that were unconstitutional, which would mean as soon as he got into office, he would be perjuring himself and violating his oath of office, and yet he voted for him. So I asked him, how can you consistently compromise on your tiny, very limited responsibility in civics, which is to choose your civic representatives and then complain about Thune for doing exactly the same thing? His excuse immediately was, to fail to do so is to remove ourselves from any sphere of office. And my response is, you either vote in faith or you stop criticizing John Thune. For me, voting is a faith issue. For Kathy, her not voting is a faith issue. She doesn't believe that God allows women to vote. I agree with her. I've written a book on that subject. Totally agree. So every election, she prays that there would be multiple men who would cast godly votes to replace hers. Allowing the vote for women in the 1920s was unbiblical, and it immediately resulted in the drift of America into a softer, more welfare-oriented, more collectivist society. Now feel free to disagree with me. 
We're allowed to disagree in this church, right? But make sure you're disagreeing with the scripture, not just because you hate what I'm doing or you, you think it's not pragmatically realistic. But in any case, it makes no sense to follow the Bible on these and many other issues unless we believe that God really does continue to govern in the affairs of men and he loves to bless those who walk faithfully with him. We don't have to win votes to be faithful in politics, but we do have to have God's favor. So hopefully, looking at how these four groups of people obeyed God in faith can help us to improve our own serve. We're called to be servants of God. And one of the essentials of a true servant of God is that he walks out his life with the obedience of faith. Now, I want to quickly outline four more tests of the obedience of faith in verses 11 through 14. First one is to evaluate whether our obedience is done in God's presence and under his lordship. Verse 11 says, So we had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once. Then they came back into the camp and lodged in the camp. The Bible calls the ark God's throne. They were doing their cultural duty in the presence of God, under his lordship. And we need to get used to doing everything that we do in the presence of God. If what you are doing, you wouldn't, you'd be embarrassed to do if Jesus was right in front of you. Oh, you better just quit doing it. But if God's word authorizes what you are doing, there should be no shame in doing that, whatever it may be. Now, some people are ashamed of war. They're pacifists. Well, the Bible calls for godly wars. Even Jesus uh, spoke about that. And yet it also says some wars are very ungodly. Some of America's wars have been ungodly. Again, God must define what is godly and what is not. We must live our lives quorum Deo, before the face of God. Now, you can certainly disagree with my interpretation of what the Scripture says, but you can't ignore what the Scripture says and still be walking in the obedience of faith. Act as if all your activities are being done before the Ark of the Covenant, before the throne of God. After all, it is God alone who can take down strongholds and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, wait a minute, that's a New Testament verse, isn't it? Well, the point is, New Testament has the same principles as the Old Testament, okay? It upholds the Old Testament. It's no different. It applies these kinds of stories to our daily living. The second test, is it eager obedience? And wow, this is a good test. Is our obedience to God eager obedience? Verse 12 says, And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Why did they need to get up early in the morning? After all, it didn't take very long to march around Jericho. And the reason we know that for an absolute certainty is that on day seven, they marched around Jericho seven times and still had plenty of time left over to conquer the city. So they didn't get up early because it took so long to get around that. I think that word early indicates they were eager to get out there and do what God had commanded them to do, and they got up early every single one of those seven days. So the word early speaks of eagerness. We too must be eager to serve the Lord even in the face of impossible odds. We must be eager to serve the Lord even when everyone around us thinks we are odd ducks. Hey, eventually they're the, going to be the ones that are the odd ducks, not us, because God will vindicate his cause. We need to be eager to serve the Lord because we love him, we're passionate about his cause. The third test, is it orderly obedience? Verse 13 definitely speaks of orderly obedience. It wasn't every man doing that which was right in his own eyes. So we cannot overreact to collectivism by becoming anarchists. 
It says, Then seven priests, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, but the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. They proceeded in exactly the way that God had prescribed. Now this speaks against hyper-individualism, and it reminds us of the importance of operating as a body together. This year, we're going to be focusing on what it means to be servants of the Most High God. Part of that means being committed to body life. And then finally, is it persevering obedience? And this is one of the hardest tests of the obedience of faith. Verse 14 says, And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. Now the whole time, nothing was happening to Jericho. It stayed as invincible as ever. In fact, if anything, the jeering and the mocking that was going on from the top of those walls probably became louder and more bold because nothing was happening, right? But despite no outward changes during the first six days, they persevered in faithfully following God's word. And I think that's a good lesson for us as well. Ours is the duty the results are God's. We should not allow discouragement over the lack of revival in the church to make us stop seeking to influence the church. Now, God has sent revival uh, overnight hundreds of times in the past, but it's almost always been after years of faithful perseverance by a small number of people. Think of how many years Abraham had to wait for God to fulfill his promise of an Isaac. God is sovereign over the timing we are called to faithful perseverance. We should not allow discouragement over the lack of reformation in culture to make us stop seeking to influence culture. God converted Armenia and other nations overnight, but it was mainly because the church had previously been persevering that true reformation happened with lasting results. The first great awakening in America brought profound cultural changes and ushered us into independence from, America's, uh, from Britain's tyranny. In other nations, God simply destroyed the nation uh, that was a tyrannical nation, allowed Christians to rebuild on its ruins. And sometimes they rebuilt from the Bible, on the base of the Bible, and other times they did not. And you can look at which rebuildings uh, lasted longer. What will God do with America? I have no idea. It may be people will only benefit from our labors hundreds of years from now. I'm okay with that if that's God's will. Or it may be God will be doing something remarkable in 2023. That's not for us to decide. Ours is the duty, and God calls us to faithful obedience. Faithful, persevering obedience is one of the evidences of genuine faith. So hopefully by now you've got a good picture of what the obedience of faith looks like. My charge to you is may each of you embrace the obedience of faith in this coming year. Amen. Father, we know that your word does bring conviction. But we thank you also, as this uh, Lord's table reminded us of, that when our lives are out of accord with your word, all it takes is casting our sins at the cross of Christ, and you forgive us, you cleanse us, you give us renewed uh, vigor and fervor for the future. Thank you for taking us as weak, sinful, um, uh, uh, soldiers who have blown it in the past, and yet want to rise up once again, dust ourselves off, and uh, seek to be faithful to you. So bless us as a congregation as we seek to advance the cause of Christ in our uh, states of Iowa and of Nebraska. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.